Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel Cunliffe. I'm Tom Gatti. I'm Kate Mossman. I'm Rachel Cook. And on today's special edition of the New Statesman podcast, we're going through our cultural highlights of the last year. Kate, Rachel, Tom, thanks so much for for joining us. We're going to try and do a sort of whistle-stop tour through books and TV shows and music and maybe even some film over the next 40 minutes. And it's really over to you guys to talk about some of the stuff that you've written about in the magazine over the last year, some of the cultural highlights that that you've found personally moving uh, and to try and encourage the rest of us along. So I thought we'd start with you, Tom, and with the author... Catherine Rundell for two reasons. One, which is that she won the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction this year. Two, obviously very important that she featured in the special issue of The New Statesman edited by Greta Thunberg. Take it away, Tom. Yes, so uh, I feel like I've come along to show and tell. I've got my my copy of Catherine Rundell's book here, but it's not actually her biography of John Donne, um, which won the Bailey Gifford Prize. It's The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure, which is... The second book that the prodigious and prolific Catherine Rundell published this year. I love this book so much. It's, it's a deceptive little book because it looks like it could be a children's book or a kind of very classy loo book, perhaps. <laughs> um, when you open it, you might think, it's, is this a kind of compendium of, of amazing facts, animal facts, you know, like the kind of annuals my, my kids read. And it is that. But it's so much more. It's very urgent in its message. It's very beautifully written. Just to briefly describe it, it's 22 short chapters on different creatures, the 22nd being the human. And it's full of what Catherine Rundell calls astonishments. So she's picked creatures that have something truly remarkable about them. So whether that's the Greenland shark, which lives for up to 500 years. So we have Greenland sharks swimming deep in the depths that were contemporaries of, of Shakespeare's. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's animals that have a kind of completely inexplicable beauty about them. So the giraffe's neck, for a long time, we believe that this was to give them kind of 
browsing advantage, you know, so they'd reach the highest leaves. That's kind of been disproved now. So it's sort of been remystified. We really don't know why they have this incredible, beautiful neck. The golden mole of the title has this incredible iridescent fur, despite the fact that it's blind and lives underground. So no real purpose to that. The narwhal's tusk gives it the quality of this magical sea unicorn. We, we don't know why it has it. And then the final thing I wanted to mention, which also runs through it, is the extraordinary intelligence of animals that she brings out. And just to cite one tiny story, she talks about the intelligence of the crow, which I think most people know that crows are quite intelligent. They can use tools. They're very adaptive animals. But there was this one study which Rundell writes about in the book in the States in 2011, where some students captured a bunch of crows while the students were wearing these sort of strange masks. Then they kept them captive, released them out of captivity, and then they would walk along where the crows were pecking about, whatever crows do. And if they were wearing the mask, the crows would recognise them and sort of scream and attack them. If they weren't (laughs) wearing the mask, they'd completely ignore them. And this grudge was passed down not only over the coming months, but also through generations. So the crows learnt fear and hate. Wow. the humans who uh, who were once cause of their capture. I could go on, but it's it's a really astonishing book. And Rachel, I know you spent a lot of this year thinking about Catherine, Catherine Rundell. Rundell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was judging the Bailey Gifford Prize. So I suppose I was one of the people that awarded the prize to Super Infinite, her book about the metaphysical poet John Donne. And it's very unusual for me. Normally when I'm judging a prize, I end up hating all the other judges because <laughs> they won't let me have my way. <laughs> but with this book, I wanted it to win really right from the beginning, partly because it's a completely wonderful book. She calls it evangelism and it is that you don't really have to know anything about John Donne to be able to enjoy it. It's a combination of biography, criticism but then this extra thing that takes it into another realm which has to do with astonishment which is a word you mentioned, noticing, Mm. paying attention to the world and to words and to everything about the realm in which we are and it kind of leaves you with this amazing sense of wonder and energy and it certainly revived my interest in John Donne but it also I don't know if she felt like this but I certainly felt like this that the book is a bit of an act of resistance because unfortunately especially in America there are kind of rumblings around John Donne that he mustn't be studied because his poetic persona is misogynistic I mean I obviously think that's all I'm not allowed to say the word bollocks, but I'm going to say it. I think it's bollocks. But she doesn't excuse him, but she defends him quite rightly. And so I felt like by giving her book the prize, we were also reinforcing that message to do with the difference between art and the person who makes art. Not that we have any evidence for Dunn's own misogyny. I mean, to be honest, Catholics were being hung, drawn and quartered in his time. So I think misogyny was the least of their worries. (laughs) Also, it was just nice for me to be able to give a prize to a literary biography, which is having a bit of a hard time at the moment, I think. And this book kind of reinvents how you write about a great writer. I mean, it really is a fantastic book. It's so enjoyable and it's really sexy. I mean, I think she believes that Dunn is the greatest poet of sex and you feel on every page that she would like to go to bed with him. (laughs) And as a consequence of that, the book 
you know, you feel like you're being ravished as you read the book. So what's what's not to like in these cold, lonely days? Is it true that he um, dressed in a shroud and preached yeah, he, he, two years before he actually died? Yes, that's true. And he did he did all sorts of mad things. I mean, he had this weird early renegade life. And then he became eventually the dean of St. Paul's. So he is, it's an extraordinary life. And he had a, a marriage that was disapproved of by his wife's family and... He wrote about suicide at a time when suicide was completely taboo. Yeah, it's a brilliant book, and it's a short book. Mm. Too many books are too long. Well, there, <laughs> there, there's a few things that connect those two books, isn't there? Like you mentioned that quality of evangelism, yeah. and you, you know, you really fall in love with Dunn reading that book, yeah. and you also sort of fall in love with these animals going through the, the golden mold. She describes this book as as a wooing, as in she's mm. she's trying to woo your attention if that if that makes any sense i I Um, think that enthusiasm is the mm. sort of great lost quality because it's kind of modish to be cynical and skeptical and god knows i am but enthusiasm takes you such a long way in life because it's contagious and it makes you feel better about things and she has that she's such an enthusiast and it's a gift and it's a gift she's able to give back to the reader Mm. on the subject of separating artist or author from their work there are going to be a lot of these, I think, flawless segues in this in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, 10 out of 10. Kate, one of my cultural highlights of the year was your interview with music legend Nick Cave that mm-hmm. seems to have gone in all kinds of directions chronologically in terms of sort of light and darkness, God, faith, council culture, everything. Tell us about that. Like, what was it like meeting him? I was terrified of it. I actually, I was terrified of it because of what's happened to Nick Cave. You know, I never get nervous in interviews anymore. And I met him in this little restaurant in Kensington that had been... It was empty, right? It was empty. They'd opened it specially for us. And he sort of came along the aisle and he looked very pale and sort of folded over and hunched and quite gothic. And I just didn't know how to begin with somebody to whom the worst possible things have happened. You know, you're going for into an interview with Nick Cave, who's lost two sons now, not just one, but two. And it's this knowledge that this person is kind of like an open wound. And then watching him begin to talk about his son before I'd even asked him anything. And I just had this strange sense of, you know, what must it be like to be this person who's walking around instantly recognisable and having to talk about grief, even maybe when he's not in the mood to talk about grief, because he he said it's a bit like sort of being a walking agony aunt. But what's interesting about Nick Cave is that he, he had so many different stages to his career. And in the last few years since Arthur's death, he's become this sort of well, a public philosopher, because he's written this book called Faith, Hope and Carnage, which is probably the only rock book to have been chosen as book of the year by Rowan Williams. <laughs> um, I remember Rowan once recommending a book about the incredible, incredible string, string band. That's, <laughs> the, that's the only other time, that's his other but one. I'm not sure if it was a book of the year. It's an unusual book because it, it makes a connection between creativity and grief and faith. So this idea that Cave finds some kind of energy in that, not only in the kind of the not knowing of trying to believe in God and failing and sometimes doing so and sometimes failing, but also in the in the place of great grief. So there's a kind of a an energy and a creative force in the sadness, if you like, and obviously an improved connection with his fellow man. Because looking back on Cave's early interviews, there was a long history of his steep antipathy towards the press. And there was a feeling in the press, particularly in the NME in the mid-80s, that the sort of quote I got from Matt Snow was that something almost evil about the band. The way he kind of 
over a career and a lifetime has sort of processed his or talked about his faith in relationship with God and the believing or not believing. That strike me as almost something similar to what Leonard Cohen did on his last album, the idea that faith can be a, a conversation and there are sort of moments of doubt and both cases sort of on both sides and that in the gaps between the certainty of either full-on religious faith and absolute atheism that's where creativity is yeah and and he seems to have had a lot a lifelong struggle with the idea of eloquence and self-expression which he seems to now trace back to his father he had this very charismatic dad who was into poetry and taught English and used to sit down at the dinner table and say right what stories do you have from the day? And when he was 19, he'd be like, I don't have anything. And then his dad would go, well, I have a story. And then they'd kind of, you know. So he was kind of growing up with a raconteur who obviously died. His father died when Cave was, I think, 21. And you can see this line of, of the idea of being misrepresented, not being able to get his words out, being taken out of context, going through all his early interviews. And then now, because of this, the shock of this unexpected second life he's had since the, the death of his son, he's actually, you know, interviewing with the Church Times and the New Statesman and the Spectator, and he's, he's valued for his words in a way that he maybe wasn't in the music press. And it's just really interesting to see how much that matters to somebody, the idea of being taken seriously or allowed to speak and not fitted into a journalistic narrative. And you've also got a bit in that interview about his views on cancel culture or at least judging somebody's past work by today's standards of whatever those standards might be. Yeah, he seems to be one of the only spokespeople for that at the moment. He talks about the cultural asphyxiation of morally obvious art <laughs> and the idea that some of the best art is created in in the space between the character who makes it and what they create. Mm-hmm. So the movement from being a slightly unsavoury person to the, the possibly transcendent thing that you can make and that's what we have to value. So yeah, I think he's the kind of the rent quote for that stuff now because obviously not many people are talking about it so it's a it's a really interesting and quite deep interview so. he was very nice <laughs> i don't know why really i nice and charming he was nice and charming he used to i mean i've got one old interview from 1988 where he beat the journalist up <laughs> and took a swing at his head and then at his balls and stuff like that and managed to miss him every time but um yeah I, there was a lot of nasty play fighting but real kind of going on with journalists i, I did feel for you because opening his book the first page is about how he hates interviews and yeah. never wants to do another one again so i did think going into that reading that piece um the one thing that leapt out at me because I just went to see Nick Cave play this summer and he talks in the piece about how his relationship with the audience has changed. You know, we talk about Dunn at the pulpit in St Paul's and, and Nick Cave has this real preacher quality and he's had it for a long time. It's been part of his persona. But he describes in, in your interview how it used to be kind of quite a one-way exchange and he'd see the audience as just this one big faceless entity and how now he sees it as a genuine emotional exchange and I've seen him once before a few years ago and I saw him this summer play at at a festival in in London and the difference was palpable really it was it genuinely felt like as close to a religious experience as you could have at at a gig how much of that was your knowledge of of what his life has been and how much of it was what he was doing on stage that the knowledge plays into it and that was definitely one of the reasons I found myself sort of weeping half halfway through it but the energy within him seemed to come from somewhere I mean God knows you know you 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 say his heart has been enlarged by the process of grief and somehow that's translated into a relationship with his audience that goes beyond anything anything he's had before and Uh, it's completely gripping to watch I thought it was quite something for him to admit that he just saw them as a mass before that yeah 
and he was throwing stuff yeah, at I them. Know. It's very kind. <laughs> you can say that now. On to TV, Rachel Cook, you are the New Statesman's TV critic, and narrowing it down to just a couple, I think, was was quite difficult. But you've you've chosen White Lotus as one of your TV picks of 2022. This sort of mad satirical drama about very rich people at very luxurious hotels leading absolutely miserable lives yeah i'm actually not sure it's satire i think it's just fact the more, <laughs> I, the more i think about it i mean i don't i don't want to say too much about it because i don't know anyone who's not watching it i mean it's a festival of unpleasantness this is the second series only one character has come from the first series the pillowy Tanya, played by Jennifer Coolidge, who's the most spoilt, babyish, infantile woman child that you could ever meet. And she's on holiday again. Now she's on holiday in Italy. And so there are a whole cast of new characters as a family, which is headed by an extremely lecherous man and his equally lecherous son. And there's a group of young people, competitive jocks. And then, best of all, there's a character played by Tom Hollander, mm. a, a gay Englishman <laughs> called Quentin. Well, we, we don't know yet fully what he's up to. I think the final part is going out tonight as we record this. So, But it look, it's fantastically enjoyable, White Lotus. And if you happen to not be watching it, then you're insane. <laughs> um, and it's really, the reason it's so enjoyable is it's incredibly well written and acted. It's, it's kind of witty and sharp. But there's something, I've never understood the idea that characters need to be likeable. I disapprove of that, I suppose. I just think that's ridiculous. And there's no one in it who's likeable, really. Not even Tanya. She's she's as grim as the others secretly. And it's about people who can't ever be satisfied. And I think that that speaks to our culture. We're not all rich, but we do live in an age of dissatisfaction. I mean, you know, to go back yet again to Catherine Rundle, we we find it hard to enjoy very, very simple things. And these are people who, you know, no view is ever enough. No thread count is ever high enough. No lobster is ever fresh enough. You know, that nothing that, and, and, you know, they're at this wonderful hotel, but they're already talking about where they're going next. You know, someone says, you must go to the Cipriani, as though, you know, on, on, on. Mm. And that's really a kind of metaphor for how we live our lives now which is in front of our screens looking 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 for the next thing what can we buy what can we eat where can we go so I think it's sort of salutary as well as entertaining it, it sounds wonderful uh, <laughs> a nice break from <laughs> <laughs> Tom and Kate you both chose the same artist musician mm. I'm not sure what to call him singer songwriter performer cabaret artist do you want to do the explaining red car yes formerly known as Christine and the Queens and then as Chris yes and, and now as red car yes yeah so this is his first solo album as red car which was a an alter ego I mean he's, he's always played with alter egos and this was a performance that we saw at the end of a just a three-part tour wasn't it at the Royal Festival Hall we have a bit of a tradition of going to see him it had acrobatics in it this show it, it, this this show was it's, it's impossible to describe this show without making it sound bad I, I, that is something I've really struggled yeah. with because I feel it had Red Car the, the performer formerly known as Christine and the Queens on his own largely there's a couple of other performers but previously he's performed with very slick dancers you know really great slick routines kind of drawing on sort of West Side Story Michael Jackson style dancing and this is just Red Car largely on his own. 
in front of an elaborate but sort of quite shonky set studenty yeah. set covered in lots of crap like you know dressmakers dummies and candles and mirrors and lots of sort of uh, paraphernalia that almost made it look a bit low budget but it's in the royal festival hall and it's for one night only and he's performing with a backing track so there's no band and yeah it's very hard to to describe why it's so good but he's got a rock star quality which mm. seems to override Absolutely. all the sort of strange ephemera that he puts into his shows. I thought he would have had to maybe outgrown this sort of studenty, heavy narrative, play acty thing by now, but he hasn't. He's defiantly still doing it and selling out the Royal Festival Hall and then coming into the audience and he's just got this power to walk between the aisles. We saw him doing this like three years ago and everyone's sort of pulling themselves up at their seats trying to see where he is and then he'll put his arm around a mixing desk by accident and do this really slapstick thing where he's like, oh, I thought it was a person. <laughs> it's like genuinely funny, even though it shouldn't be. But if we're looking for threads as well, there's a sort of weirdly re- religious element to the narrative, wasn't there? I, I forget the exact plot. It's kind of bonkers, but he's waiting for a, some sort of visitation from, a, from an angel. And this rock star quality, when he, when he turns around and, and sings, it just it is transcendent, yeah. actually. Yeah. He's, I spoke to somebody who worked with him on his first record. A famous song was Tilted. That's the one that kind of got onto Graham Norton and everything. And he's apparently such a kind of artist, and quote unquote, that he sort of moves on from all the people, all his team around him creatively every time. So he'll sort of work with a load of people, do something great, and then that's it. They're out of a job. Wow. And then he's on to a new... So he's, it's like a kind of Bowie-esque level of reinvention every time. Different personas. Different, different. personas. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I think his, his mother died quite suddenly in 2019. So a lot of this show was about trying to commune with someone up in... But there was a sort of very camp element to it. And, and the way he sort of stands on stage, he bends over at this impossible angle, a bit like the little prince, you know, the sort of the <laughs> illustration on the front mm. of the little prince wearing just tuxedo trousers and a bra. <laughs> and it's just kind of fantastic to watch. But yeah, you wonder what the future is and how mainstream it's going to get and whether he'll be doing Wembley Arena or whether he'll always be like semi-theatre based mm. kind of artist. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. don't have a, a good segue to get us from that to, <laughs> to the post Me Too era novel Vladimir that was on, on Rachel Cook's list. So I'm just going to ask you to talk about why you put it there. <laughs> well, I think I'm the only one who's read it. So perhaps I, I'll just be very 
succinct. I really want to read it. Well, look, I absolutely can guarantee, I'm willing to do a kind of money-back guarantee that if you start reading Vladimir, you won't be able to stop. If you like an unreliable narrator, then this is the book. So briefly, it's a campus novel. It's set in an American university that's in the middle of nowhere. But we're a very long way from David Lodge now, Tonto. Um, (laughs) This is a, as you say, post-Me Too book. And it's a quartet. We've got our narrator, who's a, a, a woman of about my age. She's an English professor. Her husband, John, has been accused of Me Too crimes. And her students are extremely sententious. They, they want her to reject him, which she's not willing to do. And into this already toxic situation come another couple, Vladimir and his gorgeous, pouting young wife. And our unreliable narrator becomes obsessed with Vladimir and the book kind of ends up being a sort of Stephen King misery style melodrama but obviously a very highly literary version of that so on one level it's a gripping narrative it's really really well written it's savage and dark but it's also you know I really hate the word resonant because everyone uses it about everything but it is very resonant because it's it's really about the difference between middle-aged women and young women and young women's expectations of older women, the way that they judge them, their sententiousness. But it's, it's also about sex, rage, literary competition. Aging. Aging, thin-skinned academia. You know, it's got everything. And... Honestly, it's unputdownable. And I made my husband read it and he said the same. It's just you just can't stop reading it because it's one of those books that feels like a novel rolling down a hill and you're just running after the whatever it is that's rolling down. You just need to know what's going to happen. It's fantastic. Really, really good. Mm-hmm. Ignore the reviews. They're mostly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> a it's a motto. terrible advertisement for our Elijah. profession. <laughs> what are you talking about? No. Well, unfortunately, we are all right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the rest of the world is wrong. Ignore most of the reviews. Ignore the reviews, except the ones in the New Statesman. Uh, and the next thing that we're talking about is something that, Rachel, I think you actually reviewed for the New Statesman, which is the TV show Marriage with Mm -hmm. Sean Bean and and Nicola Walker. Which, interestingly, was uh, well-reviewed by critics and not by the public. Yes. Really? What's that about? Because this was a portrait of of marriage and I wonder why we liked it and lots of people didn't. And I've always been obsessed with things that try to capture what it's like in a marriage, in drama and on television and film, because it seems like such a hard thing to do. And so many things that apparently got it right I thought were really odd like do you remember that uh, that film 45 years with Tom Courtney and oh, yes, Charlotte yes. Rampling where they've been married 45 years but he uses her name at the end of every sentence would you like a cup of tea Kate and I thought then no that doesn't happen <laughs> and then the other one which is this extremely popular thing on Radio 4 conversations from a long marriage with Joanna Lumley and Roger oh, Allen God, that's so appalling it's so appalling it's all like basically she talks in this kind of petulant flirty way and he talks in this grumpy way yes day in and day out for a long marriage it's like that's not so I wondered whether I I, I do get from that 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 is what the marriage between Roger Allen and (laughs) (laughs) Joanna Lumley would would be be, (laughs) those conversations from their long marriage (laughs) so maybe the beauty of of marriage the TV show by Stefan Goloszewski was that it was about the silence of marriage Mm. 
than the lack of the, the, the pauses and the unsaid. And maybe that's why it worked. I don't know. I think we all liked it, didn't we? Well, I think when I reviewed it, I said it was Terry and June rewritten by Harold Pinter. Yeah. <laughs> pauses. And I... I feel quite pleased with that description because it is about a very humdrum, regular marriage. Obviously, there are sadnesses of the kind that all marriages encompass and there are happinesses of the kind that will... But essentially, it's about about what his genius, I think, is to make the internal external. And he does that by demanding quite a lot of the audience and this may be one reason why the audience didn't like it he requires you to be empathetic and watchful and noticing and to see in inanimate objects and gestures and physical affection or lack of physical affection to to understand what is going on in the relationship and you know it's wonderful it has boring moments but life has boring moments it's funny and it's plungent and also I think above anything that the acting is just wonderful, especially. Mm. I mean, for me, Sean Bean is from where I'm from. He sounds exactly like the boys that I went to school with. I mean, I find him an incredibly affecting, underrated actor. He's just marvellous in it, isn't he? I just thought the way it captured the anxiety of a middle-aged man mm. was something I've not seen. Mm. Um, I mean, it's often anxiety is explored through younger characters and mm. often through women, but this fiddling kind of obsessive mm. slightly unraveling the way he hangs around his wife he's lost his job recently and tries to get on with housework and it's just putting a brave face on it but you can see him just like crumbling and I just thought that's such a such a true picture you see it all the time in in men of his age and it's not really put in yeah, art I in really agree with that I, I right, and the, the balance of power in their marriage has shifted and he doesn't really know how to adapt to that and he he's prey to these kind of new emotions for him jealousy and it's really wonderful and it is bleak sometimes but in the end it's not because it's it's about surviving and muddling along and you know and that's what we've all got to do god knows yeah and it's about the push and pull in a relationship isn't it that if one is sad the other one is always up but that that can't last forever because the other one needs its needs met as well and then it goes down and the other one goes up and it's like a seesaw it's quite a it's very subtle I, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's also quite brave in allowing moments of kind of awkwardness or discomfort to stretch out beyond, you know, we might be used to seeing that in kind of art house cinema, but for a sort of BBC TV drama, we're not used to having to sit there for sort of two or three minutes longer than we'd like to watching an awkward silence or an awkward conversation or, or a or a really uncomfortable moment between two characters play out. I think he does that mm. absolutely brilliantly. Some of the shots reminded me almost of like Hanukkah shots, you yeah. know, the French art house. Yeah. But in a Hanukkah film, something awful would happen to Sean Bean. He'd get yeah. like his head yeah. chopped off or something at the last minute. <laughs> um, and it's like, I, I was so relieved that nothing terrible happened. <laughs> the tension was so great. You know, um, interestingly, Stefan Golodzewski was in a comedy group called Cowards with your old friend Tim Key is a comedian that yeah. Kate's interviewed who gained more prominence during lockdown for writing these very funny satirical political poems 
Tom Basden, who also had a really good sitcom out this year called Here We Go, more conventional sitcom, but but another really good drama and a guy called Lloyd Wolf. So there's a little kind mm. of coterie of four who've actually all all done really well. And he also wrote Mum with yeah, Leslie, with Leslie Manville. Manville. So oh. he's he's only 42. Like, how can he write about marriage that well when he's 42? I don't know. And about mums, but maybe he's got a great mum. I mean, he, yeah, he, he says that his influences are, you know, sort of like Stravinsky and George Eliot and Zola. And I mean, he, <laughs> he, it's extraordinary. He's aiming for something very, very high. But what he delivers is a slice of real life and it's oh my god I mean it's it's just maybe it reflected too much reality for a lot of the people sitting on their sofas because yeah. there's this bit where they they you know various things go wrong and they have their anniversary dinner as a Chinese takeaway in front of the sofa with their tracksuit bottoms on and maybe people watching that were like oh, it's me I can't do this marriage is once described in a very different context in succession as the box set death march <laughs> which is a phrase that's haunted me ever since ever since I've heard it you didn't tell me that before I got married this year no <laughs> Something else that deals with silence. I'm persevering with the segues here. We've only got one film on our list because there was sort of general consensus that it hasn't been a great year for cinema. But Tom, you put The Quiet Girl top of your list. Yes, The Quiet Girl adaptation of a short story book by Claire Keegan. It broke box office records for Irish language film, which is in itself... An interesting achievement, not a huge one. I think there, there have only been, there were, prior to 2017, there were only four feature-length Irish language films made. But it's just a really beautiful piece of filmmaking. It's a story set over one summer. It's set in rural Ireland. A girl from a tough, hard-up family with several siblings is taken and goes to live with her aunt for the summer who live on a farm. I mean, it's a working farm, but it's a slightly more aspirational middle-class existence, I suppose. And it's about how that relationship plays out over the summer. I can't say much about it other than I just, it really affected me deeply. I mean, if you're the kind of person who cries in the scene in The Railway Children where she says, Daddy, my daddy. <laughs> yes. Then you, when you see this film, you're just going to need Mogadon, whiskey, <laughs> a box of Kleenex, everything. I went with my husband and we were both, I mean, when I say we were crying, we, we, were, we were sort of audibly weeping at the end. That makes it sound sad and it is very sad, I think. But it's... It, it, the. It's so beautiful. And the girl who plays Kate, the little girl, she's called Catherine Clinch. You know, she's, they've found a wonderful child actor. I don't really like children in films most of the time, but <laughs> she's, you know, she's, she's just very natural and wonderful. And because it's so beautiful, the sadness combines in you with something else to do with, you know, admiring a great piece of art it's a compelling story I think it's quite damning of a certain kind of island you know it's set in the 80s I mean Tom said that her family are are hard up I mean they're actually pretty chaotic and mm. brutal and there's hints of things going on that are never spoken it, it's wonderful about that you know not saying too much not telling too much of a story the main thing about it though is that the people you love may not be your parents and the people who are kind to you may not be your parents. And that not having children may mean that you are, you know, more capable of loving a child than someone who is a parent. And these are tough things to say. Mm. They're not things that people particularly like to hear. There's a scene when she gets out of the car 
when her father drops her off. And, you know, her father's horrible. He's horrible. And she gets out of the car and she's got long white socks on and a little dress. and, And you can see that she's dirty. She's a neglected child. And her aunt takes her and gives her a bath and it is the most I mean even talking about it now I I, you know it's very hard not to feel tearful it's it's an extraordinary film it's the best film of this year by miles but it's you know one of the best films of the last 10 years because it's so restrained and so so few Mm. films are no longer restrained you know for anyone who's read small things like these which was published last year and was by Claire Keegan and was shortlisted for this year's Booker Prize they both are kind of searching for the goodness mm. in people yes. and they find it in unusual places mm. and they both travel through bleakness mm. to get there mm. and there's a redemptive quality yes, in both exactly. stories, isn't there? You feel like those, the characters, people talk about journeys, don't they, so often mm. and you, half the time you think, what? But in that <laughs> film, yes. they really are, do go on a journey yeah. and you feel that for the rest of their adult lives they will remember what they've been through Mm. in the film and it's your privilege to share that Mm. with them. And Rachel, if you don't mind, I'm going to turn the microphone to you now. Talking of, you know, searching hard for for goodness um, (laughs) in in bleak and difficult places, you reviewed a book for us recently entitled Pandemic Diaries. Could you tell us a little bit about that? See, I think this should be up there for all the great fiction prizes in, in 2022. This is Matt... Hancock's pandemic retrospective, I'm going to call it, because it is the least diary-like diary I have ever experienced. Essentially, our former disgraced health secretary has written his account of the pandemic, which actually I, I think is a valuable thing to do. I do think it is useful when the politicians or the officials who were involved in dealing with some big national crisis then afterwards say, what was it actually like? What were we doing? And try and tell their side of the story. I'm not against that as a kind of concept. But he tells it in diary form. It begins, 1st of January 2020, I I woke up and went down to my Suffolk kitchen. And... continues from there and then right at the beginning in the introduction he makes it very clear he says I didn't actually keep a diary at the time (gasps) this reminds me of other diaries I've read like Piers Morgan's and Tina Brown's and it's a vague (laughs) feeling of non-diariness about their diaries (laughs) it's uh, it's pieced together from notes he took emails interviews with people memories and we know that memories are quite subjective but distilled into this diary form with an entry I I think every single day from January 2020 all the way through to his resignation in June 2021 all kinds of uh, analysis of handling the pandemic some of it Again, interesting looking at how various government bodies work with each other and there are things you can learn, but all from the perspective of I was right. He starts thinking about a vaccine in January 2020 before <laughs> COVID has even come to to Europe. At every point where there are criticisms in the papers, he writes sort of angrily that the journalists just don't get it. Don't they know that we're working as hard as we possibly can? Gets in all his excuses for stuff that went wrong with Test and Trace or with the very tragic situation in, in care homes and all the deaths that were as a result of some government decisions there. 
and also interlaces it with a love story his his romance with his old university friend Gina Colodangelo who he brought into the apartment as a, a as a work colleague a communication specialist and she's always there to kind of help relax him and to <laughs> relax oh yes <laughs> is that a euphemism <laughs> <laughs> I really really hope not because there are images that I don't want but you know when it when it all comes to light right at the end he sort of talks about having to do what was right for love and you're thinking what am my reading oh it sounds very vomit emoji that (laughs) co-written or or helped with the help of Isabel Oakeshott who is the political journalist who's written other books including the biography of Cameron that has the infamous pig's head rumour which is completely unsubstantiated in it but I think it it just made me really angry because (laughs) I I don't like this sort of fictionalised hero centric narrative I wrote in my review that it's basically fanfic that he's written masquerading as facts and as as recent history because it it very much isn't Uh, where he found the time to do this when he was also in the Australian jungle getting covered in god knows what i don't know well well, part of what's so nauseating about it is that is the the publication timed exactly with his departure from the jungle isn't it yeah i mean rachel cook did anything you saw in your enforced i'm a celebrity view did it redeem him (laughs) redeem hancock it all went a bit wrong didn't it because when he first went into the jungle he was being punished so people were voting for him to eat maggots or whatever but then, of course, that leads inevitably to him staying in the jungle for longer, which means that he starts to look like he's sort of winning. So it was very yeah. frustrating in a way because, you know, you wanted him to have to eat the the kangaroo anus, but you also <laughs> wanted him to leave and you couldn't have both. Eat so the kangaroo anus and leave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, you know, he, he can't shut up about his lover. And I think... <laughs> What, what I think about that is that human hearts are unruly and we do fall in love with the wrong people. But then when we leave our families, we, we should just not go on about it too much. <laughs> and he, even when he came out of the jungle and he embraced her and the shot, the money shot was exactly the same as the, the illicit the CCTV. Yeah. CCTV. Yeah. And his hand was kind of on her bum and he, you could hear him saying, I love you so much. I love you so much. And you thought... God, his kids yeah. are watching this and they're going to school and probably having the piss taken out of them. And he's just a repellent twat. <laughs> <laughs> just on the, on the topic of telling your own personal history of events that may or may not match other people's recollections, I'm, I'm talking about Harry and Meghan. Mm. Who's watched it? Two episodes down now. I've watched two episodes. Yeah. Rachel, well, I, you- unfortunately, was forced to watch... All three episodes the moment they dropped. And by I, us, I'm Yes, sorry. by you. And I was in a tiny student room at Hull University where I was staying for a, a conference. And um, so it was a very strange experience. And I, I, I regret my review now because I think I was far too generous. But I was just in a state of total isolation with only an hour to write a thousand words. So I, <laughs> and, and a few people have said to me that I've been too generous. And I, I, I it's unusual mm. for me because I'm usually a bit horrible. I'm a horrible person. But... <laughs> The more that I think about it, the more horrified I am by it. Every moment the Daily Mail is tarantararing the next bit, which is about mm. to drop, and you know, there's more up the up the line coming. More, oh god! What fascinates me is that I didn't know that they only met for one hour and then one dinner. 
And then she went back to America yeah, and, and they then, started and a long distance. And then he invites her to Africa to yeah. live in a tent yeah. with him for yeah. I mean, a sorry, week, but yeah. for a chicken sandwich. <laughs> I was, I'm going to inject a quick note of defence, at least to him in this, because I, certainly from the first episode, the second one is very boring. I'm not, I'm not surprised <laughs> that both me and Kate like, got stuck in that bit. But there's a lot in the first one about the way the press treated the royal children in the 90s and particularly how they treated William and Harry after the death of their mother and what it was like to be a grieving teenager at school okay at Eton very privileged whatever but you're still being followed by crowds of reporters who are just kind of egging you on and waiting for you to snap and then when you do it's your fault and I'm just thinking like that's when it felt like a serious documentary for a few minutes for me the Diana stuff I wanted more of that I wanted more on the psychological impact of doing that to children and Obviously, William and Kate's children now are not subjected to that kind of media attention. And I think that's really a good thing. And I I wanted an examination of that. And then it shifted straight back into sort of Hollywood elevator music. And the video diaries. The thing for me is like, when did these video diaries start? And they're sitting in the back of a car looking really bored. And there's a phone like on their lap with the underside of their face. And you're just like, when did you start filming yourselves? And just... I don't know, it's just bad television to do that, I think. Well, we'll look forward to Rachel's review of the second No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> no way. You can, I, you I can get out, to this. You can get out all your nastiness that you didn't... You didn't oh, <laughs> my God. Well, you also have to return to that student room. At- in all seriousness, Rachel, one of your TV highlights you put on the list was not Harry and Meghan, no. but it was royal-related. Yeah, I saw it was the Queen's funeral. I mean, it's not... I think however you feel about the royal family, there was something you had to kind of submit to that day. And um, we live in a country where no train runs on time. Every road is potholed. You know, everything's in a state of complete decay and dishevelment. And yet this funeral was just immaculate. And it was the end of something. And I'm always interested in that feeling of, you know, the Queen was the last of the last. And... So that felt in some ways ridiculous, but in other ways momentous. And it was just extraordinarily beautiful. And unfortunately, for days afterwards, my husband played bagpipe music, <laughs> which he became obsessed. And he Are just, you still married? Yeah, I mean, it, I'm going to make a sitcom about that, you know, the pipes of doom. And they just, he just, I would hear him all the time playing this bagpipe music. So it did have a kind of lasting effect on us. But um, it was just a kind of remarkable thing. And you can't really talk about this year without mentioning it. Defined the year yes, in a way. Yes. And I think when people look back on 2022, usually on this podcast, we cover politics on a day in, day out sort of basis. And this has been the year of four chancellors, three prime ministers and two monarchs. Um, (laughs) But when we come to remember 2022, I think the death of the Queen, the queue, the 10 days of mourning and the funeral... It was very, it was very culturally revealing of of Britishness as well, wasn't mm. it? I mean, the, the, you mentioned the queue. I mean, that's the most obvious stereotype of Britishness, and perhaps more specifically Englishness. We somehow turn that into yeah. <laughs> into the main event. You couldn't make it up. It's kind of a genius stunt, really, and, and briefly inspired you know, hundreds of think pieces on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, and isn't it amazing to think that Liz Truss was there for it? <laughs> this was. This is actually one of my favourite political facts, is that she's the shortest serving Prime Minister ever, but also the first one in 70 years to have served under two monarchs. Yes. And in her very brief 44-day Prime Ministership, 
she orchestrated and led the mourning and the the funeral arrangements, which was mm. something that Boris Johnson had desperately, desperately wanted to do. And yeah. I think there is some kind of strange British irony in all of that, but I'm not sure I can... It's delicious <laughs> that he didn't get the chance. It's wonderful. It? <laughs> this truss is the polar opposite of the Greenland shark. <laughs> <laughs> A lifespan of near days. Uh, and on that note... Thank you so much to Rachel Cook, Kate Mossman and, and Tom Gatti for joining us for Cultural Roundup. I think we should do this more often. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my guests, Tom Gatti, Kate Mossman and Rachel Cook from the New Statesman's culture team. We're produced by Mae Webson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.